This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 1st of December. And here is my snake charming co-host, Jan. <laughs> snake charming co-host. Okay. Not sure how to re- reply to that one, I'm afraid. So I'm just going to say we have a great episode today with a guest, Michael Kennedy. And he's a real snake charmer here, isn't he? Well, real in the digital sense, I suppose, yes. I don't know. That's actually one of the questions we didn't ask. <laughs> uh, we asked we asked many questions, but you're right. We didn't actually get to the to the bottom of this particular conundrum. But yeah, uh, I mean, I don't want to spend more time because it's a bit of a long episode. So unless you have anything to add, I would say let's just uh, move to the interview with Michael and unleash a world of Python goodness on uh, uh, the world, I guess. I didn't think that through. No, not really. But hey, what's new? Let's do it. <laughs> so today we welcome Michael Kennedy to the Roaring Elephant podcast. Hey, Michael, how are you doing? Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's fantastic to be here and uh, love the video aspect as well. So you guys got quite the setup here. Happy to be here. Thank you. Happy to have you. Let's hope yeah, it all works hope. well this day. Yeah, we, uh, <laughs> we're definitely still learning this uh, Although the, the podcast itself has been running for getting on towards five years, the, the video part of it is very new. So, uh, yeah, we're still still ironing out the teething troubles here and there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's really interesting. Sorry, it's a slight diversion. You look at all these newscasters and these news programs who have all had to go home, and I feel like they should have talked to us podcasters because we've had this, like, sound decent from home for a long time. And <laughs> it was such a wreck for the first <laughs> first few weeks when all the, the live panels and stuff were cancelled yeah 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 so um i I guess first of all um while i've I've already said thanks for being here like let's let's run through this like introduce yourself to the audience like uh let's let's learn a bit about you (laughs) yeah sure well i'm happy to be here uh i'm a these days i'm a python developer a podcaster i run a software business and I've been a developer for a really long time. I started out in math and science and then found my way over into programming and realized, you know, hey, this is actually super cool. I like this better. So for the last 20 years or so, I've been programming in an evolution of different languages. You know, started out in C++ and did C Sharp and I've been doing Python for a long time. I even do JavaScript if I have to. <laughs> and <laughs> just, I just, you know, I love programming and the tech space so much. It's like every single day, is like the coolest day, you know, like what new amazing thing was created today or announced today or, or possible today that just wasn't a year ago or even a few days ago. And it's just, you know, if you like to learn and you like to keep, keep up on stuff, it's just, there's a never ending buffet of amazing stuff that you get to play with. And I'm just super excited that I get to be part of that and get to play with tech and talk to people like you guys all the time. Nice. Very nice. So, I mean, the the amusing thing about about this particular interview, especially for me, is I am the world's worst developer. I, I think I I can probably <laughs> even find a certificate that says that. And yeah, I'm going to be doing uh, for on the on our side of things a lot of the the talking, and Jan's going to be uh, sitting silent. Yet he is significantly better at uh, cutting <laughs> code than me. So let's let's see how this all goes. 
It's all um, good. There's there's this uh, Stack Overflow came up with a certification program. The guy who created Stack Overflow called it works mm -hmm. on my machine. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> like it's it sounds like it's similar to what uh, okay. what you're talking about here. <laughs> nice. So you're obviously very passionate about Python. You have you know a, a fairly fairly active blog and two different uh, podcasts on it. You know what? What just what was that attraction to Python that uh, that really drove you in that direction? Well, I had been working in the C style languages for a long time, and I kind of wish I had found Python sooner, but I didn't. So uh, such is life, you know. And I had been working in languages like C sharp and C plus plus and JavaScript, and I just thought like that is the way programming languages have to be they all programming languages basically have to have curly braces they have to have semicolons I, mean, I knew there were others that didn't but generally that's like my my implicit view of the world and i was going to these tech events that were not focused around a particular developer technology and i would i would talk to people i remember talking to a couple of people and i'm like oh, these guys seem so cool and they're just doing such amazing technology work and i oh so what what are you guys actually programming in like how are you doing this oh yeah we're doing this in python i go oh, python okay you, how about you? What are you guys doing? This is really cool. And yeah, we're doing Python too. And like, I ran into all these people <laughs> like, well, if all of these people who seem like, like are doing super cool projects are doing Python, like maybe I should have a look at it. Right. And I did. And at first I was like, this is a weird language. It has like white space and indentation and like, why are there no parentheses and semicolons? How does this thing work? Right. But after a few weeks of working with it, I'm like super comfortable and just really, really loved it. I, I love the fact that there's so many libraries that you can just, you know, grab a few things and, you know, do machine learning, do graphics, do like you name it, web scraping, web automation, and just there's so much out there. And I think Python in particular has this interesting aspect where it brings in people from more disciplines. So in mm -hmm. um, like a tech sense, it's more diverse. Um, so there's people from biology, there's people from like astrophysics. I was just interviewing some guys on the podcast, which is not released yet out of the UK, out of London, who use Python and machine learning and image, uh, uh computer vision to discover 50 exoplanets that had been hiding in the Kepler space data that was just laying there. And they just said, well, we trained up this machine and we point with Python and we pointed at the data and now here's 50 new exoplanets. Like those kinds of discoveries and they don't consider themselves, you know, mega programmers, right? It's just like that sort of community. How do you not want to be part of that? <laughs> Fantastic. So anyway, that, that's why I'm really passionate about it. So I think you've, you've kind of answered this already as I was going to ask you why you know, why do you think that Python became so popular? I, I mean, I think you've answered what sort of certainly how how you sort of got into it and accelerated. But why do you think that so many people were like doing all of these like weird, wacky, disparate things? Yeah. In this in this language that how, how did it get to this point where something attracted so many different diverse groups? Yeah. So like I said, I started in like a hard programming language, C and C++, where, you know, you earned your way in by like compiling, linking, understanding headers, like all that kind of stuff, right? And so when I hear people say, you know, the language is clean and simple, it's easy for me. I'm like, oh, you know, just suck it up and learn a little <laughs> program. It's not that hard. But what I've actually discovered over 
years of interviewing people on the podcast and talking to them about this, especially and when I interview people who are high-end developers, like created Flask or Fast API or SQL Alchemy, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't get this sense. But when I interview people who do like philosophy plus programming or you know astronomy plus programming or biology and so on, I've, I've come to appreciate this simpler aspect of Python. And I don't think it's so much the language syntax, although that's important that it's simple and easy to read. I think the most important thing is Python is one of these rare languages where you can be very effective with a partial understanding of what it even is. And so what I mean by that is, is if I was going to do C++, I've got to understand all that stuff. I've also got to understand types immediately. I've got to understand functions. I've got to understand arguments and return values and like all of that stuff. In Python, you could do amazing like scientific type of stuff if you just had a script that just started at the bottom and said, here are the 10 steps, you know, use this library, use that library, draw a great picture, save to file, done. You might not even know what a function is in terms of creating them. Definitely not a class or generators or iterator, like all these com- complex programming ideas. You don't even have to be aware of their existence. And yet you could create something that if you showed to your peers, they'd be like, wow, that's incredible. Could you show me how you did that? And there's not a lot of languages that you literally can have just a very vague understanding of what it is and yet generate amazing stuff. And the ones that do, there's, there's other ones, like I'm thinking, so like Visual Basic in the 90s was amazing. You could drag stuff and click little buttons, but it, you'd always have this ceiling, right? Mm-hmm. At some point you're like, well, okay, now it's yeah. time to grow up to a real language. You want to learn Java or C++ or where are you going to go now? It's like, oh, geez. You know, that, like the, the ecosystem kind of ejects you, right? Whereas with Python, for many aspects of what you want to do, it scales all the way to the top, yeah. right? So Instagram is built in Python and Django. YouTube is built in Python and does a million requests a second. So on one end of the spectrum, we have the astrophysicist or biologist who doesn't even understand functions, but still did something amazing. And as they sort of evolve and get more capable, they don't have to leave that language. They just Oh, I got to learn. I want to pass some additional information. So how do I, oh, that's a function with an argument. Okay, I see. And then like, so how do I share this with my colleagues? Oh, well, that's a package and you publish it to PyPI and so on. And they can kind of build up until I imagine a lot of these people a couple of years later, they never think of themselves or would have thought of themselves as programmers. But then at some point they look in the mirror like, geez, I'm a programmer sort of. What, how did this happen? Right. And I think <laughs> Python is somewhat unique because it brings in all these people from all these disparate areas, finance, biology, or whatever. And then you end up, they kind of get sucked into the gravity in a, a good way. Like they just never get kicked out of that because you can keep growing as you start to understand more of the language. So I think that is actually why Python has this diverse set of people in it and why data scientists like it. Because a lot of data science kind of come from other specialties. Yeah, see, Dave, there's even hope for you if you just start doing a little Python. Yeah, I think there's hope <laughs> for many things in life. I'm, I'm pretty sure that me waking up one morning and looking in the mirror and going, wow, I'm a developer, is just not one of them. <laughs> uh, just um, to it happens very what, slowly. You right. never notice it. <laughs> <laughs> just uh, something to, I wanted to add there to what you were saying is that I think one of the reasons that Python is so popular is precisely because a lot of people programming in Python aren't considering themselves programmers. Because it's very yes. easy to share components in, in Python. And if it's C++, for instance, if you get a library or something, you spend a week just deciphering what the API is supposed to be like, and you need to understand it before you can use it. 
well, the Python things yeah. I install with pip or whatever, they're simple because they're written from a simple thought process. I just made something cool and yeah. it's got three endpoints to, to do something with and that's it. And you can just plug it in very easily. And that again makes it easier for people that aren't real programmers to adopt and to make something cool with it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think another aspect that's interesting is it's been a while since I've been to any C++ conferences, but I feel at least my experience going to the PyCon conferences recently, they were embracing that. They had people up there who were talking about, here's all the different types of things people are doing here. And it's fine that they're not, quote, real programmers. Like, it's amazing that they're here and they're making this huge contribution to our community. Whereas other more formal languages sometimes have this like, oh, you're not a real programmer. You're not doing like, you're not following the right design patterns. You're not doing this thing, all right? It's like, you're not using dependency injection. So you must not know what you're doing. Like, there's just not really that <laughs> that opinion, uh, right? I feel it's a little more welcoming of the non-expert, let's say. It does have a danger though, because since they're not that strict on all the rules and perfect programming mm. things, whatever, that language also allows you a lot of freedom when you're creating stuff. And it's quite easy to create a monster. So it has good It, it, it totally is. There's a whole movement or a whole two paired organizations in the Python space called the software carpentry and data carpentry groups. And their mission is to set up educational stuff and training events and whatnot, mostly for academics to say, you've learned enough to be dangerous, <laughs> but do you know what source control is? Do you know what Git is? Do you know what unit testing is? Let us teach you like enough CS concepts so that you're successful rather than you just build some kind of monster, like you said. So I'm, I'm really excited to see people doing that. I don't know how many are taking advantage of it, but a, a lot are. Well, usually you hit yourself once, you write a monster, then you have to maintain it, and you kind of figure out, oh, that's why I should write clean code. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This is what they were talking about. They told me I wouldn't like this. They were right. It's the best way to learn. Yep. Yeah, it definitely sticks with you that way. We've all been there. So, so like, I suppose one of the questions has to be, if someone is... It, you know, listens to this and thinks, you know, maybe I am that person that wants to wake up in the morning and at some point in the future think, hey, I, I, I've turned into a <laughs> developer. Like how, how do they, how's, how do they get started? What's the, what's the best way? Like other sort of resources that you like regularly recommend or is it yeah. just kind of just think of a project that you're interested in and get stuck in or what, what do you, yeah, I, I've got a couple of recommendations and some just general vague ways of thinking about it. In terms of thinking about it, before I get to any resources, mm. a lot of times people think, I want to build something and they see like an amazing thing. And I think the iPhone broke a lot of people's reasonable expect expectations and, you know, mobile apps that are just beautiful and they do all these things and, you know, um, but actually like a whole team of people maybe built that. So what I would say is, Almost everybody that has a job does almost doesn't matter what they do has all these little annoying things that they do day to day, right? Maybe it's, well, at the end of the week, I have this spreadsheet and I got to put data in it. And then maybe at the end of the month, I take the four weeks and aggregate them up at the end of the year. I got to take all those, right? Like maybe what you could do is you could work on a program that would automatically generate that spreadsheet or automatically merge them, the smaller ones into a bigger one. And, you know, those would take 
10, 15 lines of code, right? You could totally learn how to do those things in a straightforward, simple way. And if you spend an hour a week or an hour a month on those kinds of things, and then you no longer had to do that, that's thrilling, right? And, and it has no more mistakes in it because you didn't forget to highlight that line when you copy and pasted the thing. So there's all these little challenges or, or things that we just got to do that are mundane. And, you know, I interviewed a woman from Berlin named Carolyn, and she did this whole presentation around um, artificial intelligence and Python in journalism. So things like, uh, let's automatically just watch the headlines. And if there's something that happens that I'm interested to, I tell them I'm interested in this, it could like bring it up, maybe even give me a summary, right? So there was an example where there was a reporter who had, there was an earthquake in Los Angeles and three minutes later, they had published to like the LA Times or something like that. They had published an article about the earthquake three minutes from the time it happened and they were asleep in the middle of the night and it woke them up. <laughs> they went over their computer, like their Python script had already, par I think it's Python, had already partially written the thing and they just filled in the details and hit publish. And so there's all these like little things that you could really make dramatic changes that are actually not big projects. So people who are not feeling like developers, I think what they could do in a really meaningful way is to find these little things. In the Python space, there's a popular book by Al Swigert called Automate the Boring Stuff. Mm. And it's, it's a book that goes through a bunch of these examples. And so a lot of people now, you'll hear them say, you should learn by kind of trying to automate the boring stuff. Don't take on huge challenges to try to like dethrone Airbnb. Just, you know that spreadsheet that you didn't like anymore? Don't do that by hand ever again. Or, you know, copying these files and syncing them over there. Don't do that by hand. Just make that automatic, right? And those things are very approachable and very doable. There's a Manning book, which I haven't read, but sounds very interesting to me. Uh, it, it seems cool. It's called... Um, Tiny Python projects, and it's got a bunch, like twenty or thirty of these little things, and uh, maybe those will give people inspiration. The, the GitHub repo is public; you can just check it out. All right, so that's that's where I think people should start. They should take these little problems that they they kind of do manually now and find a way to just write a tiny bit of code. And it makes a huge difference. The it's other one, improvement of life, uh, the, right? The other, improving of the little things. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like if. You find the thing that bugs you most that seems really repetitive and boring and don't do that anymore. If I, instead of spending one hour, you spend like two weeks on it, but then you never do it again, right? That, that kind of stuff. In terms of resources, I think there's there's a ton. Obviously, I have courses over at TalkPython, uh, some great beginner courses. Uh, I recommend those, but there's also things like Free Code Camp. Uh, they have a YouTube channel that has nice options there. Um, a lot of good books that automate the boring stuff might be a good place to start as well. So yeah. Uh, also listen to the podcast. I think one thing that I really was surprised about and I'd like to hear your experiences here as well is I've had people when I, when I created the Python podcast, I figure the, who is my listener? My listener is somebody who's super passionate about Python so much so that they're not just going to work with it, but they're going to listen to the guy about how they built the internals of it. And it's just going to be all about like, going deeper as an expert. And I, I got messages from all sorts of people saying, hey, I, I'm starting to understand what you're saying. I've been listening for six weeks. Now it's starting to make sense. I'm starting to follow. I'm, and what was really interesting to me is a lot of people unexpected to me were using the podcast as like language immersion. Like I want to yeah. learn Portuguese. Yeah. 
So I'm just going to move to Brazil and eventually I'm going to know Portuguese. They, they kind of just want to swim in the water of, yeah. of that ecosystem. And I think it's a, that's also a really good way to, to learn. It's just to get familiar with what people care about and what they do in that space. Yeah, I think it's a very typical way of learning languages in general and programming languages definitely having that immersion mm -hmm. happening, just being able to start. It's it's a, almost a culture thing, starting to find out what the culture yeah. of that language is. How am I supposed to speak this? What's the accents? What's the intonation yeah. like? Because it's yeah. writing a C program or a PHP or a Python thing, once you got that click happening, then things just happen like, yeah, this is how it's supposed to be. And you're no longer second guessing. Am I doing this right? Is this, that, that makes a big yeah. difference. A absolutely. A lot of people don't have a work environment or some other environment where they can actually mm -hmm. actively do that. Right. So podcasts are a way to, to bring yep. that culture to you if you're not already in it. So, I mean, when, when so either when someone is looking to get started or even maybe they're sort of you know they're a reasonably proficient programmer but they're looking to sort of go deeper are there any types of project that you think are particularly well suited to python and i guess the converse are there any projects or any sort of things that you would say oh please whatever you do don't ever do don't ever try and do xyz in python yeah, there's definitely some that fall into both categories. Python is generally good at many, many things, but uh, I'll get to where it's bad at. <laughs> I would say you probably want to work on something that you can you can share or you can let people access and use. And a lot of times that would be like a website or a web API. So if you're, say, in data science space, you could set up one of the things that works really well in Python is web scraping. So you could set up some sort of automation that goes and pulls a bunch of different data together using some of the uh, data science libraries. You could pull together like sentiment about this or friends of that, and you could build like a cool API potentially, you know, showing the, I don't know, how people feel about whatever, right? Or what are the trends around people buying, I don't know dog harnesses like you name some random thing you could probably create a like you know some sort of service around it and, and share that with the world there's cool libraries like streamlit that let you write like this straightforward simple code that i talked about but it actually becomes like an interactive dashboard some really interesting ways to like kind of avoid javascript and turn python into like web stuff um i think th those are great um if you find a community that's really badly underserved, and like really bizarre example, there was these two guys that wanted to learn a web framework. They had a friend who built competition pumpkins, like <laughs> pumpkins that are a thousand pounds, okay. right? Like there, there's a whole community around building competition pumpkins. And at the time there was no like web destination for pumpkin com competition people. So they're like, well, I need to learn how to build this web framework. I want to build something fun. So let, and I don't care about pumpkins, but let me build the pumpkin destination, right? And they did, and it became pretty popular and they, they learned the framework and stuff. So I think there's opportunities to just like look out and see sort of, you know, these gaps that you might run into or you might know. So those are all things that are good. Things that are bad uh, or that I would avoid. 
probably the most clear thing that just doesn't have an answer right now is Python and mobile apps. There's really? there's really no reasonable way to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a, that's a big, that didn't used to be a big problem, but it's like, that's not great. Now, what's, yeah. what is common is to have a mobile app written in Swift or Kotlin or something like that, and then maybe a backend service that's all yeah. Python, right? That would be totally reasonable. But there's not a reasonable way to build a mobile app in Python. There's a few like proof of concepts. There's a thing called Kivy, K-I-V-Y, that will let you build a certain type of mobile app in Python. But the type that you build, it's, it's kind of like, like if you want to completely design your UI from like rendering it yourself. So if you're going to do it in like OpenGL or something like where you don't use the widgets of the, the operating system, you just say, oh, well, I'm going to draw this box. And if you touch that box, then that means X, Y, and Z. It's, it's pretty good at that kind of stuff, but it, you know, that's not how most apps are, right? They're most like, well, here's the little list thing from, you know, Cocoa Touch or whatever, right? So there's just not a great option for that. So I would not build the phone side mobile app stuff mm. there. Like Pure I said, the backends, the, the services for it are great, uh, but not the other way around. Like we have mobile apps for the, our training courses and the backends are all in Python, but the front end stuff, we actually use Xamarin for yeah. C sharp. Interesting. That a diff as, as I say, as as a as a terrible developer and have very little knowledge of this side of the world, it it really surprises me that that's uh, that's an area that is just not fulfilled by the community. Is like is that is it something that the Python community is is actively working on? And there are a couple of things in that space, but just none of them are really ready for prime time yet, or. Is it not? Is it just there, hasn't not been in focus? There's there's a couple of these chicken and egg problems, um, where there's kind of a, a lock and w one thing has to break, but there's not enough pressure on any direction. Um, and mobile apps are one of those. There are there are people working on it. They're they're trying things, but it's you know something they can sort of experiment with in their free time, as opposed to Apple, who's working on Swift, and Microsoft, who's working on Xamarin, and you know. Google working on the whole Java API, like the, the gap is super huge for the amount of effort and team size, team size applied to that problem. Part of the challenge I believe has to do with specifically the iPhone, I think was making it very hard to run interpreted code, non fully compiled code on their devices. I don't remember exactly what the restriction was, but like it's even for it's getting Xamarin on there with .NET, which is compiled. Related. Yeah, exactly. And so they had to like do tricks to like, instead of use the JIT compiler, like pre-head, like ahead of time compile it, like C. So there's a, so Python just doesn't fit well with that world. So there's there's things that need to, to happen. Now there there are things running Python on there. Like for the data scientists, there's a thing called, I think it's Carnet, C-A-R-N-E-T, N-E-T-S, I'm not sure. I said Carnets, but I think it's French. So I'm probably messing that up bad. Um, which is basically, if you've heard of Jupyter Notebooks, it's it's like Jupyter, like a Jupyter Notebook implementation running on phones and iPhone, which is it's super cool, but it's like a very sl small slice of what you might want to do if you wanted to build a mobile app. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think mobile apps are also I mean, it's, it's possible. 
mean, there's a lot more yeah. testing to go on. You don't really know what your destination. I mean, if you're doing a web app through a web interface, REST API, it's a browser, right? And if it's uh, Firefox exactly. or Chrome or Safari, you, you can test that. While if you're doing a native, and they're basically app, the same these days, thankfully. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I know you have all these different devices, and you've got like on one end you've got the Google Pixel Five or the high-end Samsung, or you've got like the Huawei one that has some of the services but not all of them, and you're like, oh, geez, this is. This is a challenge. And then the the most annoying thing I think about the mobile apps is the app stores. Yeah. Like going through, getting permission to publish your stuff. Um, I went through so much struggle and challenge that should not have ever been there just to get our apps published, right? So we worked for like three months writing the app. We're like, yes, it's ready to put it on. We send it off to the app store. And they're like, <laughs> Oh, there's no way we're going to accept this. Like, wh why won't you accept it? Well, because the the app says Talk Python Training app or something something like that. But in the description, it says with our courses and our app, this is the best way to learn Python on mobile devices. Oh no, there's an app already in the app store called Learn Python, and you're trying to impersonate it. What do you mean I'm trying to put like it's a thing you can learn. I said you can learn it in the description. The name is not that. The icon is totally not that. And they're like, but you're trying to impersonate the Learn Python app. I'm like, no, I'm not. There's 50 other apps that you can learn Python in. And we went back and forth. And eventually I had to just translate it. I said, okay, imagine you were trying to learn the violin. And we had a an app called Violinista or something. And it would teach you. And it said, with our app, you could learn how to play the violin. But there was an app called Learn Violin. Like, do you understand yeah. that those aren't the same? Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, that's the same thing for ours. It's just not the violin. <laughs> I mean, this was literally a back and forth for a week with an adult. <laughs> and like, then oh, we had like other chat. I mean, and it just made me, you know, made me so appreciate the web where I'm like, I want to put this on the internet. Get oh, push. It's right. on the internet. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Gl glory, glory be to, uh, to Android allowing, <laughs> allowing you to easily sideload apps. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I eventually, after two weeks, got the stuff published. Um, but yeah, they was like, these are weird conversations that I'm having with a tech company that shouldn't see the world this way, you know? Okay, yeah. dragging it yeah. back to Python. Um, <laughs> personally, when I do Python stuff, uh, I've started doing Python because it was dabbling machine learning, doing data, mm -hmm. munging, stuff like that, Python, data frame, stuff like that. And I found myself writing not real applications in Python, full-blown full applications, but more like mm -hmm. blue code, things that are put in between a certain production pipeline that takes in data, a different Python script does the munging, aggregation, filtering, whatever, and then pushes back to the next step. Yeah. So I see it a lot as a, a real scripting language. Now, on the other hand, it sure. is possible to write a complete full program, and I've done that too, in Python. Where do you see the, the gravity of most developers going, and do you agree with where the gravity is? I think that it's going, I think it's going a little bit away from this scripting side, not saying necessarily that the scripting side is bad or anything that that's, it's a really great power of it, but I feel like for a long time, people saw it as well, Python as a scripting language. It's kind of like bash and other languages where you kind of stick stuff together. Right. Uh, there was some, some show I saw where they're 
they're talking like, oh, what's your favorite scripting language? Bash or Python or whatever. And like, they can be used in these ways, but they're not actually comparable. Like, like I said, like you would never write YouTube in Bash. Maybe, uh, hopefully you wouldn't. <laughs> so, Bash tube, I can see it. I, yeah, and I think for quite a while, you know, when you would look at Python programs that people would write, they would be just one large .py file. And the feeling was, here's the script that I pass around and then that you can run it. And what I'm finding more and more is now Python things you could run, whether you call them scripts or, or programs, they're, they're broken into a bunch of pieces and more factored in the way that you might for an application. I think people are finding ways to take Python and do more on the application side with it. Not to say that I think there's any less of it happening in the scripting sense, but I th if you ask where the, like, the gravity is going, I feel like the tooling and some of the, the popular libraries and things being shown to people are, are moving towards like, okay, well, let's break this into a bunch of pieces because as an application, you want to have a data layer, you want to have this layer, and, layer, and the tools are getting better to support that kind of work as well. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, things like Jupyter Notebooks, uh, they don't encourage that. No, they're not meant for that. It's right. actually possible there. Uh, I mean, it's totally possible. Like you could write part of your code in little Python files and like reuse them. Or, um, but, but the data science stuff is often more exploratory anyway. Yeah, more ad hoc, more interactive. That's why Python. That's what Python is very good at. Just have that interactivity. Just yeah. change a couple of things, see what happens, do it again, and build up iteratively. Yeah, Tends absolutely. Yeah, it's such a different way of thinking about like writing code and, and working with computation to have a notebook yeah and it does actually work very well with decoupled systems if you're doing microservices kind of stuff then python is again is very nicely fit to make that things like uh, interconnected processes working and load balancing <laughs> and stuff like that I, I that's very easy to do in python as well yeah i think so and then with the async it away like the new parallel stuff it's it's really good at sort of yeah. orchestrating that um a la node.js style I mean, are there any are there any particular enhancements or features or libraries that you you see sort of coming on the horizon that you're really interested in? Yeah, there's a couple I'm interested in. Uh, there's a new one called Fast API, not to be confused with Fast AI, which is also cool, but not even close to the same thing. So Fast <laughs> API is. Um, a new web framework for building APIs. You can also build web apps with it, but it's mostly focused on APIs. The reason I'm excited about it is it brings a lot of the new innovations in the Python 3 space into the web framework. So if you're not familiar, Python's kind of gone through a somewhat of a rough time moving from a much older version of Python, Python 2, to a newer version of Python, Python 3. To give you a sense, in the core developers and the founder Guido Van Rossum in 2008 said, we're going to stop work on Python 2. We're going to create something better. We need you all to just do a little bit of work to migrate over and it's going to be much no, better on the other side. And so, no, you don't. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't work out that way. So, you know, just last year, did they retire Python 2? Yeah. And I would say just three years ago, it was a debate whether or not you should not use Python 2. And three, whereas all the people working on the language and the innovation and the speed and the secure, everything was put into this version, Python 3, for what is that? That's like 10 years? Yep. 
eight years. I mean, it's crazy that people are like, you know, I know everyone's been working over there for five years. I just want to stay over here. It's just, it was really weird. Okay. So the, one of the consequences of that is all the popular web frameworks until a couple of years ago supported both. And by supporting both, you get the intersection of the feature set, which is a much, much smaller feature set. You don't get like type, uh, type declarations called type hints or type annotations, which is kind of like defining the type in a static language. You don't get parallelism. You don't get all these different things. And finally, we've kind of, as a community decided like, yeah, we're actually really, really done with that. And so when that happened, there was a lot of other things that got created that said, well, now that we don't have that constraint, let's really fully take advantage of all of these ideas. And fast API is one of the web frameworks, I think is a super cool example. It has like, for example, if you have a um, function that's going to take, uh, going to be an endpoint from API, you can define a class. The class has a bunch of properties that have validation stuff put on them. Like this has to be a number. This has to be between these things this can't exist or something like that. And then you just say the function takes one of these, the whole, a the whole framework will take a JSON document, automatically do the type conversions and validations, set up that thing and pass it to you. So all those things you have to think about are just gone right and in python 2 that wasn't really possible so it's just things like that are, are coming along and i'm really excited about that i'm excited about streamlit for the data scientists i think that's a really cool way to build these interactive dashboards without being a web developer uh, just want to get something online that's that's definitely a cool one just want to hook into the fast api you just mentioned just to make it clear it it helps you to create a new api fast it's not about making Python fast because Python yes, being exactly. a non-compiled <laughs> version, non-compiled language, there is a bit of the fear that it's going to be slow and uh, version three definitely sped a lot of stuff up as well. That's one of the other advantages, I think, for that for three has above uh, two, speeding up yeah, the actual Especially the very the recent versions, yeah. But that being said, it's Python, in my opinion, if compared to, to things like Bash or PHP, it's pretty fast usually. It's not really a hurdle to use Python. Yeah, it's, you know, the web is super interesting when you can, like, what does speed mean in a website? Because there's the code that you write, but there's also all these other pieces involved, right? Like I'm talking to a database. Well, often when a website is slow, it's not because like the bit of code that they've written is slow, but it's talking to database. It could be that they've actually written their their code wrong and they talk to the database 10 times in one web request. <laughs> and that is why it's slow, but it could just be, they don't have indexes in their database mm -hmm. and it would be a thousand times faster if they would just go add an index for that particular query or other types of things like this are, are really interesting. And um, like on, on the talk Python training site, um, if I pull up the logs, I, I've done a lot of work on the performance there and it's all in Python. And I would say we get, typically 10 to 50 millisecond response times from request comes in until it goes out of the, the out of the machine. And you know, 10 to 20 milliseconds, that feels fast in any language yep. to me, right? Yep. On the other hand, uh, are you guys familiar with uh, Google um, Lighthouse, Google PageSpeed? Mm -hmm. So this is a, a place you can go and you can put a URL in, and it'll tell you what Google ranks your speed as and how they believe it's encountered by a user. And they started using this for SEO for like ranking, right? Mm -hmm. okay. So I thought, well, my, my site's, it's, it's getting like 20 second response time at 
maybe I can make it a little better, but this is going to be great. Let me see how good it is and throw it in there. And they say, your pay, your site is average to below average in speed. I'm like, oh, come on, what's going on here? Like, this is horrible. Like, <laughs> like no one's going to perceive. If I made that zero, they wouldn't tell the difference, right? The ping time is, is way more than that. So then I went through and I, they give you all these recommendations and I'm like, all right, well, what, what is the problem? Says, well, one of the problems is the images you are serving is not the same size as the CSS says they should be. So some of the slowness is like a phone or even a slow computer doing the image processing. Like, oh, okay. And they're like, your images are not, you know, optimized to have the minimum color set to have a smaller <laughs> space. And your CSS is actually being requested in five files. It's not being compacted into one. I'm like, well, none of those are programming things, but apparently that matters how people experience it. And more importantly, it matters how Google ranks it, yeah. <laughs> right? So I'm like, all right, well, yeah, I, I spent sense. days just optimizing. Yeah, I spent days just optimizing all of that stuff to, to get those numbers good. But, you know when you think about performance, there's like all these different layers. And I guess bring it all back around to your comment, John, is some of that has to do with Python and can, but you know, even if that went to zero, I still had tons of work yeah. to make it to work well, right? And so you got to take a holistic view when you yeah. look at it. But I do agree, fast API is about building APIs, making the developer of the API fast, not making the code potentially fast. Although it may be, I, that's not, I don't think it's, the naming purpose. Nice, very nice. Right. So, I mean, as we as we wrap this up, um, something I think might be useful for our audience is to understand. Obviously, you've got a a blog that we mentioned at, at the start, a blog.michaelkennedy.net. You've got two different podcasts, TalkPython.fm and PythonBytes.fm. What what what's the sort of ideal audience for each of these? Who do you who do you target them at? The Talk Python one tries to tell stories behind the technology mm -hmm. and, and stuff. I feel like one of the challenges that we run into just in tech in general and even in science, you know, broader, more broadly in science, is that we have these really amazing ideas and these accomplishments, but by the time they reach us, they're sterilized as much as possible. All right. So you might say, well, here's the, the, here's the API of this thing. It tells you to do X, Y, and Z. Like, okay, well, that's cool and it works and it's, it's great to know it. But what would be really nice is to know, well, why did that person build that? Like, what, what did they try before? What inspired this to get created like that? Like, where did things come from? Or, you know, more importantly, like, how are people taking some of these APIs and doing stuff that just, it seems really mind-blowing, but actually they were able to do it without huge challenges like this 50 exoplanet type story and mm -hmm. things like that. There's a bunch of those. So if that is interesting to you, talk Python. On the other mm -hmm. hand, Python bytes is kind of the opposite. It's what, 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 what happened this week in the space. And if you imagine maybe like a, a newsletter, here's the, here's the five or 10 things that are cool this week that happened. But instead of just saying what they are, there's like, you know, a couple of minutes of analysis around each thing with me and my co-host, Brian Auk, and we talk about that. So on one hand with TalkPython, these are like evergreen stories that are good for five years. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's always going to be interesting that these people found these exoplanets, even in the future. 
Whereas maybe on, on Python Bytes, you'll learn about that online conference happening next week, that three weeks later, it won't be super interesting. So one is kind of like a, a live newsletter type thing, whereas the other, it hopes to tell long lived stories. All around Very Python. Nice. Yeah, and, and your blog, who's the audience there? The, the blog, I, the blog, I try to put up little interesting ideas or um, things maybe I've taken some, from some of my courses, like the one that's up at the top is like, uh, I have a course on writing Pythonic code. So I condensed those down to like 26 little tips for how to like make your code more Pythonic. And for folks who don't know what that means, um, it's not just cool Python, but it's idiomatic basically. So every programming language has idioms, like ways of doing things that make you look like you belong to the group. <laughs> or you've taken, say, Java code and just made it run under Python, or you've taken C++ code and made it run under Python, or Java run under C++, you name it, right? And so Pythonic code is code that is like done the way that sort of the, the experts have decided we're all going to work this way. The language is built this way. So if you work this way, you kind of work with the grain of the language instead of against the grain. So yeah, stuff like that shows up on the blog. Wonderful. So I think with that, I don't know about you, Jan, maybe you haven't learned as, as much as I have, but I've learned a lot about Python. Um, really, <laughs> really enjoyed um, chatting with you, Michael. It's been great. Uh, it's been great talking all things Python with you. Yeah, you as well. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been great to talk about it. Thanks for joining us, Michael. It was fun. It's just, so, as you said, it's rare to have a chance to talk with somebody about Python if you're not really working in Python, and I'm not a programmer by trade anymore. So thanks for being on the show. It's been wonderful having yeah. you. It's been great to chat with all of you guys, both of you guys. Thanks. And that's all we have from Michael Kennedy on everything Python. As we mentioned in the interview, he has a couple of his own podcasts out there, Talk Python and Python Bytes. So go ahead and give those a listen as well. And of course, you can join him on his blog too. With that, I think that's all the Python we have for today, unless Dave has anything else to add. Nope, nothing else here. Okay, one final big thank you to Michael. And with that, that's all the time we have for today. You can support this podcast by becoming a Patreon. Every contribution helps us very much. We are on YouTube. You can like, subscribe, hit notification bell, make Dave happy with the YouTube stuffs. You can still go to www.roaringalpha.org, our homepage for a link to our Patreon page, more information about the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter using the at roaringelephant tag, and you can still send feedback by email to the podcast at roaringelephant.org email address. And with, that, with all that out of the way, until next time, my name is I Didn't Get Bitten Yon. <laughs> my name is probably not Hissing Dave. <laughs> anyway, we look forward to talking to you all next week. Goodbye. See you then. <laughs>